Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm assuming you've heard by now that Paul Bernardo had a parole hearing today. If you didn't hear this, well, now you have. And the essential part of the news today, if we were to whittle it down to just one thing, the important part of what came out of this is that he's not going to be set free. He's not getting out of prison. He's going to be staying there. Uh, Thankfully, the corrections people, the parole people weren't swayed and Paul Bernardo is going to be behind bars as it should be. However, huge amounts of interest in this today, Uh, not just from the public, but also from the media, lots and lots of people there. One of them who we're happy to have join us now from somewhere either in Kingston or between here and there is Susan Claremont, columnist with the Hamilton Spectator. Susan, thanks for doing this. Hey, no problem, Scott. I saw there were tons and tons of media there. You're not in any way surprised that even 25, 27 years after this, that there is still this level of interest, right? No, not at all. I mean, I would say that this is the most notorious murder case in Canadian history. Um, The, you know, he's the most reviled criminal I think we've ever known. Uh, and that still resonates with people all these years later. Yeah, I, 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 talking to some people today, I got the sense that they were both fascinated and repulsed, as you say, and they're kind of mad at themselves for their fascination. They would wish they could just sort of let it go, but they can't. It's, it's just one of those stories that we have a very hard time letting go of. Well, I think it's, everybody feels as though they have a personal connection to it, anybody of a certain age. You know, I I can remember being a university student when the Scarborough rapes were going on and having discussions with my girlfriends, my roommates at school who were from Scarborough, who, you know, had a lousy summer because their mothers wouldn't let them go out of the house and wouldn't let them uh, wander around at night because of the fears of the Scarborough rapist. Uh, you know, so uh, for me, even, it's it's somewhat personal. And, you know, added to that is the fact that nobody has has seen Paul Bernardo, been in the same room with Paul Bernardo for 25 years, not Mm. since um, 23 years, not since the day that he was sentenced and became a a dangerous offender. Well, let's we'll go to that first, because that's one of the objects of real fascination here. Does he look like a 54 year old guy that has had a hard 23 or 25 years in prison? He looks very much the same as he always has. He's um, clearly he's older. He's 54, as you said. He's heavier, got a bit of a pot belly, um, but still a fairly, fairly boyish-looking face. Same hair. Um, I describe it as being in my column as being you know the same sort of tousled haircut um, that we all remember him having. Uh, you would recognize him in a heartbeat as being Paul Bernardo. So older, but the same. I mean, just a few more wrinkles and a few more pounds. Yes. yes. Walk, take a minute or two here and explain how this worked. He was still in the prison, right? He didn't leave the prison. He wasn't transported somewhere. This hearing was in the prison proper. It was, although this is... Um, different than any other parole hearing I've gone to, and I've been to many, many of them over the years. Um, Typically, a parole hearing, I go, I'm in the same tiny little hearing room as the offender, as the members of the parole board, as, you know, uh, victims or their families. We're all there together. 
In this case, however, because there were so many people who wanted to be there, they, they couldn't accommodate everybody. And um, I suspect that security was also a concern. So the way it was done was Bernardo remained at Millhaven Penitentiary, just outside of, of Kingston, which is a maximum security prison. Um, and he was in a hearing room with the two parole board members and the members of um, the Mahaffey and French families, the families of, of his two murder victims, as well as uh, a woman who was one of his rape victims. The media, and there were a lot of us, were actually next door at medium security Bath Institution watching it all on a video screen. And we've we got to take a break in a minute. We're going to get started into this, Noel, right now, because... Um Reading all the reports, and I read as many as I could, including yours, which, by the way, was the best one of the bunch that was coming out of there. His argument, as I understand it, basically was, uh, and it's a weird one because I don't remember hearing this before. I had low self-esteem as a young man, and this was really what caused me to do this. uh, But I've worked hard to be a lot better now, so I'm good to go. I mean, is that in the most Reader's Digest version what he said? Yep, it it is. He... um he talked about having a speech impediment when he was a child. He was born, he says, tongue-tied, um, which is a legitimate uh, medical issue, and it made his speech um, difficult to understand until he was about seven years old. And he said that that had a, a lasting impact on his self-esteem, and so that's why he raped and murdered women. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Susan Claremont, who's in Kingston just a few hours ago, finished sitting in on the Paul Bernardo parole hearing. And Susan, just before the break, we were talking about this idea that Paul Bernardo came out with today, that he was, uh, these actions that he did, these horrible things he did in some ways was the result of him having a a speech impediment and, and anxiety issues and things like that. I don't remember ever hearing about these before is this a new revelation a new self-identified problem or cause for these actions that he's come up with after all this time yeah it seems to be um nobody i was with today had ever heard any of this stuff before um you know he he really did sound like his own therapist um he has clearly spent a lot of time uh thinking about um, his own psychology, and I guess this is what he came up with. Well, 25 years, I guess. you got you got time to come up with something. This may be it. He also said, there's a few things I want to get to, he also said that he has cried almost every day over the crimes he's committed. Uh, when you watched him today, did you, not that anyone's going to believe it anyway, I suppose, but did you get this sense that he was a man that was just racked with remorse for 25 years? Oh, well, I mean, he did cry at several points uh, in the hearing, but I don't know what he was crying about. I don't know whether uh, this was genuine remorse, if I sound skeptical, it's because I am. That's okay. Or, we all are. Or, or if it's uh, crying because, um, you know, woe is me. At, at one point, he even said, you know, it's really tough being Paul Bernardo in prison. He actually said that. And, um, you know, I I was in a room uh, full of journalists um, 
Paul Bernardo and, and those people in his room couldn't hear us, and our room actually laughed. Um, it was just such an absurd, ridiculous, self-serving, um, BS thing to say. Well, let it me throw was- another one. Let me throw another one out, because it was another quote I saw today. And, you know, it's funny you said that you guys laughed, because... I actually laughed when I read this, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not allowed to laugh at anything in this case. There's nothing laughable in this, but one I read was where he said, I'm a very flawed person. I know I'm not perfect. And I was like, right, oh, right. How, really? You're really going to say that? that? That just, it seems so unself-aware on top of everything else. Yeah, and you know, he spoke for hours today, Scott, and his speech was sort of peppered with those sorts of things. Um, Just the most hideous and vile things you can imagine coming out of his mouth, um, because we know what he has done. We know what he he was capable of and is capable of. Um, You know, I can't even imagine what it felt like for... Um, the Mahaffey and, and French families having to, to sit and listen to that today. Well, what was stunning to me, and Susan, I don't know how you do with time passing. I seem to lose track of time sometimes. It blew me away when I realized today that Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey would have been 42 years old today. That just it, it, It's mind-blowing to think that could be the case. Uh, their mothers were there speaking for them and, and had victim impact statements. And i got to tell you, they're online. I read them today. Even now, all these years later, they are crushing. What they said was emotionally crushing. It's, you know, there is no such thing as closure. There, you know, uh, I think it was Leslie's mom who said... Time does not heal all wounds. Um, it's as raw and as painful uh, for these families today as it was 25 years ago. Um, it has uprooted them. It has ruined their lives. It has, you know, they, they talked about how they've worked so hard to heal, even just a little bit, and how this hearing process um which was, you know, begun by Paul Bernardo, has um, ripped everything wide open again. One of, some people have said, and I I don't know whether this is true or not, I mean, I I believe that Paul Bernardo probably really does want to get out of jail, but some people have said that this was nothing more than a chance to torture the families again. Do you get that sense, or do you think he really did want to use this to see if he could somehow spring himself out? I think it's both those things. I think... Um, that he thinks he has genuinely changed and deserves another chance. Um, but I think he is also um, an attention seeker, and he he knows what his reputation is, what his legacy is in the world. He knows that his uh, name um, still makes headlines all the time. And I think he revels in that. I think he enjoys having an audience and um, uh, being in the company of, of people. Well, it must drive him nuts, too, though, that, that Carla is out of prison. That must make him, I mean, we don't know that, but it must make him crazy. It must. Um, interestingly, her name was, was rarely mentioned today. Um, uh, it came up uh, a couple of times. He said, uh, virtually nothing about her apart from the fact that he and Carla were devastated when they accidentally killed uh, 
um, Carla's younger sister, Tammy Homolka, while drugging her and raping her. That they were, they were devastated by that. Well... I don't even know what to say with that. But anyway, right. listen, uh, Susan, I really appreciate you doing this today. People can read. Uh, Susan's stuff is already up online. You can read it in the paper tomorrow. There'll be more coming. Susan, really appreciate the time. Drive safely. Okay, thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We know the election, the municipal election is Monday evening. I hope everybody is going to vote. We need to get our numbers up from the last time when it was in the low 30%. Anyway. Used to be that in a municipal election, anybody could advertise for any candidate and spend any amount of money they wanted to help that candidate get elected or to help another candidate get defeated or some proposition or something like that. The rules have changed. Today, if you want to advertise as a third party, you're not running If you want to advertise for a candidate or against something or for something, you have to register And then there are rules on what you can do and how much you can spend. Now, as I say, with the municipal election on Monday, there are a bunch of groups that have done this. They've registered as third-party election advertisers, so they are able then to make their case in the public. Some are private people. Matthew Green, the former now not running again Ward 3 councillor, has registered as a third-party election advertiser. Uh, There are groups like Say No to Fred's LRT Corporation. That's the name of one of them. Uh, Uncover Community Development is the name of another one. I don't know what these things mean, some of them, but those are the names. Well, somewhat unexpectedly, there is also on the list of municipal election, third-party election advertisers who have registered Mount Hamilton Youth Soccer Club. Got me interested. What is Mount Hamilton Youth Soccer Club doing involved in the election. What is, why? Why would a youth soccer organization, a youth sports organization be looking to advertise in an election? Well, I thought, let's let's bring on the president and find out. His name is Tony DeLuca. He joins us now. Tony, how are you tonight? How about yourself? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, this, I think, is very unique. I don't remember something like this before. Why are you guys jumping into the political pool? Well, for years, Mount Hamilton, which centers on the, or uh, focuses on the center of the the mountain, and we also ran programs in the lower lower mountain uh, and some of the um, uh, areas that didn't have soccer. Because we're working with you know the city for fields, um, but we've been trying for the last probably six years to get a facility in our own backyard. Because a lot of uh, you know our population makes up about thirty one percent of the city. If you look at the wards that we're, we're we're situated in, and we don't have an indoor facility, nor do we have fields of quality in the same area. You go to outside of the, the central city or lower downtown area, and they have abundance of facilities and fields. So not that we didn't try. We tried to go through, you know, the uh, we tried to do a partnership with the school board, and it didn't work. We tried to do a partnership, a uh, private partnership with the city of Hamilton, kind of like in Staddy and the quad pad. Uh, we were told that there's too many indoor facilities and that it just wouldn't work. Uh, have you to support that? So now we're hoping that who you know this election could spur some change. Uh, we have about 2,500 kids under our domain, um, and we're affiliated with Hamilton United, which is about another 800 kids. Wow! And we're just looking for a place for the kids in the center of the city that don't have to travel. You know, Ancaster has Redeemer Dome; it's a great facility. Uh, previous to uh, to Players Paradise closing, you know, the Stony Creek area had Players Paradise, another great facility. Um, we make up 31% of the population. Stony Creek's about 19, 
uh, Ancaster is about seven, uh, and they have great things in their backyard. We're just wondering why there's no support in the center of our city. You, you and, have, sorry, Tony, let me jump in for just yes. a second, because oftentimes when people are doing this third-party advertising, when they're registering, it's for a candidate, some particular person they want to support. You're saying you actually spread over a number of different wards, so it's not for a candidate. No, we just want somebody that's going to be there to support the, the youth, and it should be for all kind of athletics. You know, growing up, athletics was a great thing. My parents immigrated from Italy, didn't really speak much English when I was younger. Um, you know, it's a good way to bond. Uh, we find there's a big influx of, of immigrants again at this time, a great way to bond. Mount Hamilton ran a free program uh, for the new immigrant um, uh, workers organization who brought out all their kids for free. We gave them uniforms, a ball, uh, a lunch, and we had our, our, our uh, soccer mentor coaches run programming and games on a Saturday at Gilson Park, well attended. You know, it's amazing how even though, even in their own group, some kids didn't speak the same language, beautiful to see them all play the game. So have you, as part of this, because if, I'm presuming you're going to be doing some kind of advertising, maybe I've missed it, but I presume that if you've registered, you're going to be doing something advertising-wise. Something will be going in the spectator uh, this Saturday. Okay. As part of the message to parents. And as part of that, have you polled or checked with candidates who are running for office to see what their position on this would be about putting fields or, or giving you land or something for an indoor facility? Like, are you going to be recommending who people should be voting for? We have a list of everybody who, who supported the, the document that we're putting in the paper. It'll be in the, in the listing on Saturday. Okay, so something was, what, was sent to all the different candidates and asked what their position was on this, and then they were returned, and you based it on that? Okay. And so, and how many different wards are you going to be making recommendations for? Well, according to the, the, the document I just got back, and again, the office did most of this, so uh, there's wards ranging from 1, 2, 3, 11, 12, 8, uh, 14, uh, a couple of mayoral candidates. Wow. Okay. All right. I mean, it, it, this covers a, a huge chunk of the city then. Yeah, it's, not a, it's not a Mount Hamilton problem alone. It's a city problem. It really is a city problem. Everywhere you go, like um, not only am I the president of the club, but been with the club for over 10 years. I have a 17-year-old boy who's played soccer. I have a 12-year-old boy and now a 3-year-old daughter who just started playing. And so we've traveled not only with the kids to other areas, even as close as Burlington. Facilities are far advanced than what we have here. We have one of the oldest infrastructures in the city, I mean, in in the uh, southern Ontario, and we just don't have the facilities to support the growth. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Tony DeLuca, who is the president of Mount Hamilton Youth Soccer Club. They have done the taken the unusual step, and it is unusual. I don't know that it's happened before, partially because it's a new thing you have to do, but of registering as a third-party elections advertiser with the city, which allows them then to purchase ads to support candidates or not support candidates. It's unique for a youth sports organization, for sure. It's unique for a lot of organizations. Um, and Tony, you, you, now I know this is a new thing to have to register for this. Do you know if the organization has ever done anything political before? Have they ever tried to take a public stand like this in a political forum? Uh, no, we never tried to take a political stand. And, and again, it's not really, I'd like to say, it's not really a political stand. We're asking for some assistance, and we just wanted to see which one of the candidates are, are willing to you know, support uh, new facilities and, and the youth of, of Hamilton and surrounding area. So nowhere in here do we say, you know, vote for a particular individual. We just list who support our vision. 
and and who support you know getting better facilities for for the youth in the area, especially when the center of the city has such a huge population compared to the outskirts. But that's kind of like saying who to support. I mean, if you, you're not saying it maybe directly, but you're saying if you like the idea of us having an indoor facility or better facilities, here's who to support. Well, it's listed there that it, who shares our vision. There you go. Yeah. So let's just say, do you run, here's the question when I, when I thought about this and look, I think it's, I think people should be putting their positions out there and saying what they want. Everyone else is, heaven knows, about certain things. Um, but is there any concern? Did you ever think about the idea if if the person that you put out there and say, hey, here's someone who supports our thing, if they don't win, do you get yourself on the outs politically? Do you find yourself then that you're not able to work with whoever becomes the new person? I don't think so. I think, you know, because it really says that you know, one of the lines in here, uh, municipal elections are on October 22nd. Please support the candidate who we believe supports children in your community. So I really don't think anybody's against it. Maybe some candidates haven't taken the time to look into it. Right? But the really issue is, is that these ones here actually have taken the time to, to look into it and share the same idea that there is a need. The need, as you identify, and people can, they'll see the ad and uh, look, at, with the uh, Player's Paradise, and people, if they don't know what Player's Paradise is, it's if you drive down the highway towards Niagara in Stony Creek, it was a big, it is a big white, looks like a barn, that was an indoor soccer field It's now going to become a giant grow-up, um, appropriate on today, I guess. Uh, anyway, uh, it, there are a lack of fields I keep hearing from people. Uh, are there other soccer associations who are on board with you on this one? Have they, like, where are they on this one? Why are they not attaching their name to this as well? Well, we did it on our own. We didn't try to bring in other soccer organizations. Um, there are certain organizations, certain areas that have facilities and have, you know, a couple facilities in their backyard. And we just don't. And we've been trying since, you know, 2013 to get a facility in the center of the mountain, really, because our population is the greatest there. And that was to no avail. So, you know, we took it upon ourselves as one of the large organizations in Hamilton to, to bring this, this issue to light. And that's really what we're doing. Are, are you talking about, just to be clear, are you talking about having a new facility built for you by the city? Or are you talking about just getting an opportunity of land or a spot where you can spend the money yourself to build it? We presented a proposal over a year and a half ago to Donna Skelly and a couple of her, her staff in, in, in which we were looking to... Um, basically get a land lease of one of the parks, build our own facility with some assistance, financial assistance from the city, which we would replay, similar to the, the new Stadia and the uh, quad pad uh, program that they set up, a repayment over a, over a period of time. And we would actually run it just like they do. Uh, we're, in, we're in the business of running soccer. Uh, we have the staff. It would include outdoor and indoor fields. So it would be a full complex that people could visit, and it would be used all year round. And do you, I assume then if you're going to take out ads and if you're going to be spending money on this thing, I assume that the membership, the, the mem- you talk 2,500 kids, the families are behind this, that they see the need as well. Well, they see the need now, especially because we have a limited amount of, of turf time and our winter programming is severely hampered. Do you think, I mean, I guess you'll find out after the election because it'll be, det- I guess that'll determine or help you decide whether this was a good move or how effective this was, but is this something that more organizations should be doing, Tony, to, to get their voice out there and get their concerns out there? Cause I, I listen, I hear about it all the time. We don't have enough ice. We don't have enough fields. We don't have enough diamonds. Is this something more people should be doing so that counselors are 
knowing ahead of time what is wanted and, you know, if you want our support, here's what you're going to do for it. Well, I think it's a vehicle that, that can be used now. It's open to everybody. And I think it's a good idea to get your, your voice out there. Not every group in the city is politically connected or has the ability to tap into certain areas of, of politics that, that could help them. This kind of level of the playing field to say, you know what, we're, you know, and it's not a big, like the ad isn't significant. Um, the, the amount that uh, time is more, you know, a whole board of, of 13, 14 people is all volunteers. Put this together. You know, work towards getting this 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 problem out in the open. And during election time, you know, it was a, we thought it was a good time to show everybody that there's a significant need, especially in 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 a few wards. You know, and the wards that make up the center of the city, when you have them, are six, seven, eight, and uh, fourteen. And again, that's over thirty-one percent of the population of Hamilton. We have no facilities. His name is Tony DeLuca. He is the president of Mount Hamilton Youth Soccer Club, and you will be able to see that ad and see who they are suggesting that if you want facilities that you could vote for. That will be in Saturday's spec. Tony, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. Scott, thanks for all you've done. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier today, Dodgers are playing against the Milwaukee Brewers. It is game five of their series, a crucial game urgent game for someone to win. You win this game and you put yourself in a great position. So what happens? Well, the Dodgers decide that they they look at who Milwaukee is going to be starting, a guy by the name of Wade Miley, who's a left-handed pitcher, and they decide, you know what we're going to do? We are going to do what we always do, like every team does. We are going to load up our lineup with right-handed batters. It's a left-handed pitcher means it's a right-handed batter. Why do you do that? Well, if you can imagine, for the, many of you know this, but if you can picture the batter's view, if you're standing as a right-handed batter, so on the left side of the box, if the pitcher is throwing left-handed, you have a better view based on your angle. You can see the ball for a longer period of time. It's not coming from kind of behind your head. It's coming from in your line of vision. That's why oftentimes... Most times, teams will try to put more righties against lefties and lefties against righties if you're batting. Anyway, so Wade Miley's starting the game. The Dodgers load up with their right-handed hitters, figure they're going to put the lineup in place that's going to pound this guy in this crucial game. He starts the game, throws five pitches to one batter, and Milwaukee manager Craig Council comes out and pulls him out of the game and puts in a reliever, which apparently was the plan all along. They were going to lock the Dodgers into their lineup. They were going to make the Dodgers commit to who they were going to put in place. And then they were going to rip Miley out of the game. He's now going to be pitching in game six. And instead, they brought in Brandon Woodruff, who's actually having a very nice game. It's 1-1 at this point in the sixth inning. He's having a very good game. Talk about a brilliant, excellent Unbelievable strategy. I don't recall seeing a manager do this before. I'm sure it's been done. I don't remember seeing this. I've always wondered why teams don't do this. Because here's the other thing. Teams, especially before a game like this, an enormous game like this, you are spending your morning, afternoon, whatever it is, up until game time, you are spending your time scouting the pitcher that you're going to be facing. You're scouting by looking at video, by looking at charts, by looking at what he likes to throw in certain circumstances. You are spending all your time preparing for that starting pitcher. The Dodgers just spent their whole day getting ready for a particular pitcher, 
and that's not who they end up for the most part. That's not who they end up facing. It's a brilliant move. And I can't understand why more people have not done that up until now. It seems to me surprising that it's never happened before, at least not that I can recall, not in a big game, that you throw the complete changeup, pardon the baseball pun, but you throw the complete changeup at the other team and you say, eh, guess what? You're not going to face him today. You're getting our other guy. I just, I'm, I, I love when managers do stuff that is brilliant and makes lots and lots and lots of sense. And you know what? We've been seeing more and more of this in recent years with baseball. We saw this with the Indians last year, the year before. Remember what they started doing? which I thought was a brilliant move, which I was surprised nobody had done before. I mean, some managers just don't have the guts to try these things because it's always easier. If you're going to fail, it's easier to fail by going by the book because you can defend that stuff. If you do things the way everybody does it and you lose, you can go to the ownership or your general manager says, I did the right thing. If you do something that's completely out of the box and it fails, now you look like an idiot. So guys don't want to do it. But last year, the year before, Terry Francona and the Cleveland Indians did something that I thought was genius as well. And that is, let's say you're in the fifth inning and suddenly this is the key moment of the game. You've got two runners on base. They could be giving you the lead, the other team, the lead. They could be breaking the game open. Terry Francona would bring in his closer. Everybody else saves your closer for the ninth inning. Everybody decides, no, I can't use my closer, my best relief guy. I can't use him till the ninth inning. That's what we do. That's how it works in baseball. You save your closer to the ninth inning. What if you don't need him then? Well, then we save him for the next day. Terry Francona would say, it's the fifth inning. I got a guy on second base. I can't let this run score. He would bring in his closer. And it started to work. And it started to work again. And it worked again. And it was genius. And then he would have two or three basically closers and would bring them in whenever the time was needed. He would bring one of those guys in. I thought, uh, I love, I love when managers are willing to think outside the box and willing to give it a go, give something a go that will be completely unexpected, completely unusual, completely unique. And even if it doesn't work sometimes, I mean, this is, a, this is an interesting time to do it because you're two wins away from the World Series. You don't want something that is going to completely blow up in your face, but boy, it is, seems to me that this is a brilliant, brilliant thing. I'll tell you the one that I'm still waiting for someone to do. And again, I have no idea. I don't, well, I wouldn't have expected managers to do this, so who knows, but I'll tell you what I'm waiting for somebody to do. What I'm waiting for a manager to try, you know what an EFIS pitch is? Many of you know what an EFIS pitch is. I don't know where the name, there's a name, the reason for the name, and I, I can look it up, and I, can, I think it was a guy's name. An EFIS pitch is basically a Major League Baseball pitcher throwing as if it was soft toss, as if it was slow pitch. You're not firing it in at 95 miles an hour. You are lobbing the ball up with a high parabola so it drops over the plate. You're throwing literally almost as slowly as you possibly can. Because when major league players practice day after day after day, when they move up through the ranks, they come up through the minors, they get to the majors, what they are used to is hitting fast pitches. 
90, 95 mile an hour pitches with movement, without movement, the odd change up to. But they are used to hitting speed. You suddenly, and you would think, well, then if you slow it down, it's going to be super easy to hit. You would think it's not because it completely messes with their timing. You watch when a batter gets ready to swing at a pitch. Remember Josh Donaldson, Jose Bautista, those guys, the, the front foot would come up. It was all timing. You're timing the swing because you know when the ball is going to get there. It's all about timing. Well, now you throw a ball that takes double the length of time to come across the plate. And instead of coming on a flat plane, which is basically what a fastball is doing, it may be moving, but it's coming relatively flat, you're now throwing it. So it's dropping. It's coming in, falling out of the sky over the plate. I want to see a manager find a pitcher. I don't care who. I don't care who. And have that guy learn to throw an EFIS pitch consistently. Learn to be able, from 60 feet, 6 inches, throw a lob ball that will consistently cross the plate. These are these are top world-class top athletes. Somebody can figure this out. Somebody can learn how to do this. It's going to put no strain on their arm because they're not even really throwing hard. They're lobbing it. I want to see a manager teach a guy to go in there and throw nothing but EFIS pitches as a reliever, maybe pitch an inning or two. And you want to know something? You will destroy batters. Once upon, once along the way, somebody may catch up to one and hit it a long, long way. But more often than not, the timing of a ball that is now, rather than coming in on a flat plane, is dropping in front of you. You are either going to pop it up or you're going to drive it straight into the ground. You're not going to, in baseball, you talk about squaring a ball up. You're not going to square a ball up. You're going to catch it with the top of your bat and pop it up, or you're going to catch it with the bottom of your bat and drive it into the ground for a ground ball, or you're going to swing and miss completely because your timing is off. I want to see a manager have a guy come in and just throw lob balls. I think that would be genius, I, I and I think it would work. I'm positive that it would work. Not every time. You don't want a whole team of people doing this, but it would work. I'm telling you. Uh, let us move along to basketball for a sec because the Toronto Raptors are beginning their season this evening, and this is the year that they have to do it. Kawhi Leonard is Kawhi Leonard is the guy. Kawhi Leonard is the big trade they made. They traded DeMar DeRozan. This is the year they have to win because Kawhi Leonard, in all likelihood, despite what people may say, Kawhi Leonard is going to be, in all likelihood, leaving to go to Los Angeles. He's a Los Angeles guy, wants to play in L.A., did not want to come to Toronto in the first place. He seems to have settled in okay, but the idea is that he's going to be gone after this year in all likelihood. So this is the year you got to win. And, and, the guy who has been your kryptonite, remember him, LeBron James? He's gone too. He's out of the East. He is now in Los Angeles with the Lakers. He's in the Western Conference. You don't have to play him in the playoffs anymore. This is the year for the Toronto Raptors, you would think. This is the year. Will it be? I'll tell you what. If they don't win it this year, if this is not the year for a championship for the Toronto Raptors, when you consider that they have got Kawhi Leonard, Kyle Lowry is still under contract, but is beginning to get up there in years a little bit. And you've got a bunch of other guys that are good players, but not necessarily superstars. Doesn't happen this year. Oh, this could be a rebuild time. This could, this could be, this could be the last one. So enjoy this one. And one other thing, by the way, about the NBA this year, 
that I do want to point out to you. And that is, if you get a chance, if the opportunity presents and you can somehow find their games on TV, and I don't know how you're going to because it's certainly not a team that gets a lot of attention, be sure to tune in and watch some Los Angeles Clippers games this year, not because they're going to be a good team. They're probably not going to be great. But keep in mind, there is one Hamiltonian in the NBA. One. His name is Shea Gilgis-Alexander. He was drafted this spring. He immediately got traded to the Los Angeles Clippers, and that's where he is playing right now. There is one guy from this city who has made it that far. We've had other players have a taste or get close or play on the national team. We've had other people play in the NCAA. We've had people do all kinds of stuff. But we have not, prior to now, been able to put someone in the NBA who is going to be a star. Shea Gilgis-Alexander is going to be a star player. You are, going to, you are going to be watching him for a long time. If you get a chance to see him with the Clippers, do your best to catch up because he is, uh, he is not only going to be the first Hamiltonian, you can make a very strong case that in very short order, he is going to be the best-known athlete from this city period, any sport, period, maybe ever. That's what the NBA does. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.